It is estimated that over 6 billion Bibles are in circulation throughout the world today. By far the best-selling book of all time. But why should we read it? We live in a culture where very few are familiar with this book. It could be intimidating and hard to understand. Many feel it's an archaic book that doesn't relate to modern-day life. Could it be possible that God desires to transform us through His written Word? Join us as we discover together all the Bible has to offer. Well, good morning. Yeah, welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, we are in week three of our Why Bible series. My name is Kevin Valentine. I'm the lead pastor here. Thank you for joining us. Um, and I'll tell you about this series. I'm going to jump right in and just tell you a little bit about why we're doing this series, but really what my hope for you is through this series. My hope, my dream for you, actually what I've been praying for you every single, almost every single day of this series is that somehow over the course of these four weeks that you would find a desire that God would give you a desire to actually take this book, open it up and read it and apply it to your life. And I'm just telling you, this book has words of life, of truth. In fact, I'm going to share with you what's in this book a little bit today. Um, while we're in week three, we're talking about the New Testament. But I just want to tell you, my, my motive, my ulterior motive to this entire series, um, I'm just going to give you what's going on behind the scenes. I want you to read this book. I want to somehow encourage you, challenge you, hope that you will pick up this book and read it on your own. And so today is really an attempt to give you everything you need to do to be able to pick it up, read it, and understand what's in it in order that this book might actually change your life. There's a reason it's the bestseller of all time. There's a reason it's different than any other book that is on the planet that ever has been, that ever will be. And we've been diving into that the last two weeks and today is no different. Um, But I want to use a passage of scripture in it to tell you about what this book is, what's in it and what it's for. You find it in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says that all scripture is inspired by God. What that means is that God actually inspired people, says that he literally breathed into people that then wrote down what God said. Um, And I will just tell you this, if you're wondering, Ed, is that how it happened? I will just say this. If God is capable of creating the earth, the universe, everything in it, including yourself, um, I'm pretty sure that he can write a book. Okay, I'm pretty sure that he can do that. And so God, this is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong, teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And now I want to I wanna just camp on this verse for just a second right at the beginning um, to just kind of tell you what this book is for. First of all, it teaches us what is true. It teaches us the truth about life, the truth about God, the truth about you, and the truth about God's love for you is written on every single page. The second thing that we're told in that passage of Scripture is that it helps us realize what is wrong. Now, that's a big deal. Don't you want somebody to point out when you're wrong about something? Don't you want somebody to just go, hey, just a little heads up. You're not quite on on this. Actually, you're kind of off on this. Isn't it nice when one of your friends comes and tells you that you have a booger hanging out of your nostril, right? Like you want to know that, okay? You want to know that because what happens is if they don't, you see yourself in a mirror and what are you paranoid about? How many people just saw me like this, right? That's what you're worried about. 
So what is this Bible? It teaches us what is true. Truth about God, truth about you, truth about God's love for you. It helps you realize what's wrong in your life. Then after that, what does it say? It corrects us when we are wrong. Now, this is a big deal. And here's what is found in the Bible. A lot of people just think the Bible's here and it condemns them, tells us what's wrong. It tells us how bad we are. The beautiful thing about this book is it does what some of us long to have happen in our life. Not only does it tell us where we're wrong, but it corrects us. Hey, here's a different way. Hey, here's a way to take this problem that's going on in your life and, and change it around and approach it differently and actually correct it and make it right. And I'm just telling you, um, we need that in our lives. We need somebody not only to tell us what's wrong, but to correct us and help us know how to handle our finances, our careers, our friendships, our marriages, our parenting a different way. That's what correction is. It also shows us how to do what is right and know how to do the right thing. When we regularly are in this book, it prepares and equips us to do good things and live a significant and meaningful life. And I will just tell you, I don't know a single person that doesn't want those things in their life. I don't know a single person that doesn't want someone to just come along and say, hey, man, you're missing the mark a little bit here. Let me help you. Hey, you know what? This thing that you can't figure out in your life that's been wrong for decades, um, let me give you a different perspective and have you approach it this way and ask God for help. And maybe that thing will actually go away and become a strength of yours rather than a weakness. All of us need that in our life. It's in this book. Are you in it? Are you reading it? This whole series is designed to take this big, intimidating book with lots of pages and lots of words and, and bring out the context of it, the content of it, and the concepts of it. Because you need to have the context to understand what you're reading. You need to know the contents so you know how to apply it to your life. You need the concepts because there's principles in this book that aren't necessarily um, specific to your situation, but the principle works in all situations. Now, last week we talked about the Old Testament. This week we're kind of jumping into the New Testament. And um, so what we're going to do like we did last week, there's this, um, there's this uh, organization called The Bible Project. They've put together a series of videos that really kind of explain the Bible and biblical concepts um, from like a 10,000-foot view using illustrations. It's actually, they do a phenomenal job and they have a video for each book of the Bible. You should check it out online. But they give a great overview of the New Testament. So since we're covering the New Testament today, we're going to start with their video to give us that overview. So check this out and then I'll be up and we'll take a deep dive. The New Testament. If you open up a Bible to its table of contents, you'll see it's made up of two large collections, the Old and New Testaments. The word testament refers to a covenant partnership, which is what both of these collections are all about. They tell one epic and complicated story of God's covenant partnership with Israel and all humanity. The Old Testament is called Tanakh in Jewish tradition. It's a unified scroll collection of 39 Israelite texts that were over a thousand years in the making. In contrast, the 27 books of the New Testament all came into existence within 30 to 40 years of each other. They were all written by first generation followers of Jesus. From an early period, Christian communities began collecting these texts and reading them alongside the Old Testament as one unified story that leads to Jesus. The New Testament begins with four narrative books that together are called the Gospel. They tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth's life, death, and resurrection as an announcement of good news. They're followed by a fifth narrative work called Acts of the Apostles. Here, the risen Jesus commissions the apostles, a word that means the sent ones. They're appointed as Jesus' representatives to spread the good news about him throughout the ancient world. After Acts comes a collection of letters from the apostles. These were written to provide teaching and guidance for local communities of Jesus' followers called churches. There are 13 letters connected to the Apostle Paul, and they're not arranged in the order of when they were written, but rather from the longest to the shortest. 
Then there's the letter to the Hebrews, written by a close but unnamed associate of the apostles. After this are the letters of James, Jude, Peter, and John. Two were brothers of Jesus, and two were among his first followers. The last New Testament book is the Revelation, a letter to seven churches that reveals a prophetic word of challenge and comfort to all of Jesus' followers. So those are the books of the New Testament, but what are they about? The four gospel accounts introduce Jesus of Nazareth, both as the promised son of Abraham who will restore God's blessing to the nations, and also as that new human who will defeat evil and restore humanity to partnership with God. So Jesus is portrayed as a human and more. He went about announcing the arrival of God's promised kingdom, and he spoke and acted as if he was Israel's divine king. But instead of calling himself king, Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, that is, the human one who would act like a servant. The Gospels are making the claim that in Jesus, Israel's God has become the faithful Israelite and the true human that we are all made to be but have failed to be. Jesus' mission was to confront that dark evil that lurks underneath humanity's evil, luring us into selfishness, violence, and death. But how do you defeat that kind of evil? The surprising answer in the Gospels is that Jesus overcame our evil by allowing it to kill him on his paradoxical throne, the cross, where Jesus died for humanity's evil and sin. And it's where he lived out what he taught that nonviolence, forgiveness, and self-giving love are the most powerful things in the universe. And because God's love for his world is stronger than evil or death, Jesus was raised to new life as the prototype of a new humanity, and this brings us to the story of Acts. Through the Spirit, God empowers Jesus' followers to spread the life and love of Jesus out into the world as they invite people to leave their old humanity and join Jesus' multi-ethnic family, the new humanity. This is where the letters from the apostles fit into the story. Here the apostles address early Christian communities and they show how the good news about the risen King Jesus changed history and should reshape every part of our lives. They also explained the good news by constantly appealing to stories from the old Testament and the stories of Jesus, showing us how to see our own life stories as part of the epic biblical story. So all humanity is trapped in a Babylonian exile, but Jesus came to create a new home. We're all living in different kinds of Egyptian slavery to selfishness and sin, but Jesus died as the Passover lamb to liberate us into the promised land. Our old humanity is bound for the dust of death, but Jesus' resurrection opened up a new future for a new humanity. We live here in the current evil age, but through Jesus and the Spirit, a new creation has burst open here and now. And this leads us to the book of Revelation, where the whole biblical story comes together in powerful symbolism and imagery. Jesus is portrayed as a slaughtered, bloody lamb who is exalted as the divine king of the world. He's leading his people out of slavery and exile in Babylon. And as they resist Babylon's influence, they may have to suffer alongside their slain leader. But when you follow the risen king, not even death can prevent the dawn of the new creation, which is here depicted as a new Jerusalem garden temple, the true home of humanity after its long exile. And so on the Bible's last page, heaven and earth are reunited and the new humans take up their appointed task from the Bible's first page to rule the world together in the love and power of God. The New Testament is a remarkable collection of documents. They represent the testimony of the apostles that points us to the risen Jesus himself. And through God's Spirit, these human words have been speaking a divine word of hope from the first century to the 21st. 
Each book shows how God, through Jesus and the Spirit, is leading our world to its ultimate goal in a renewed creation. And so the story's end is really the beginning of a new story that is yet to be told. And that's what the New Testament is all about. All right, so that is your overview, okay? Kind of a 10,000-foot view. And what we're going to do over the next few minutes is we're going to start hitting the little down arrows on little segments of the New Testament to kind of unlock kind of what's underneath that heading to give us a little bit more depth. And so to do that, um, when you walked in, you were given a program. Inside your program, there's a couple things. One is a devotional that we would love for you to have to get you into God's Word. And the other thing is a note sheet. Um, So if you turn that over, you've got um, all the notes for today and they are, uh, there's a bunch of blanks there and we're going to fill those in together because I really want you, we're going to cover so much ground. I want you to follow along with us. And here's the deal. If you walked in and uh, you do not, and you did not get a program or a pen, I want you to have everything you need to take notes today because I believe that God's not only going to help you understand the New Testament, but I do believe he might even speak to you outside of that. So would you raise your hand? We'll give you a pen and a program right quick so you have the notes. And I know some of you dudes are like, I don't take notes ever. Um, Come on, bro. Like, man up. Grab a pen and a paper. God's got something for you. Just raise your hand, um, unless you didn't put under uh, underarm deodorant on, then don't. Um, but uh, but I would like for you to take notes today, and I want you to do this as you're taking notes and filling in the blanks. Anything that strikes your mind, anything that kind of pops up, write it down, jot it down. You never know when you're going to go back and God God just might kind of go, hey, you need to think about this or pray about this or something like that. So um, last week, we ran through the Old Testament um, really, really quickly. This week, we are going to run through the New Testament. I have 10 signposts along the journey that we're going to stop and look around at that's going to help with context, content, and concepts. Now, Where the New Testament starts, this is really important to understanding the whole book. In the Old Testament, God promised Israel that there would be a Savior that would be born, and it would be God's own Son. And God, through His Scriptures, described in detail thousands of years before where He would be born, the circumstances around His birth, about His life, His death, His resurrection, um, and, and said that He would be the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that He would save everyone through Abraham's lineage. And then what's interesting is at the end of the Old Testament, God goes dark for 400 years. He goes silent. Um, For you young kids, he ghosts them for 400 years, okay? Like he does not say a word for 400 years. And then Jesus shows up and like fireworks start going off all over the place as people start going, wait, wait, wait. We think this might be, this might be what God told us about hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and things start really heating up. And so what ends up happening at the beginning of the New Testament, it's so important that we understand what's happening and that all centers around Jesus because the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament is Jesus. The New Testament concealed. In the New Testament, we realize that Jesus was who the Old Testament was talking about, and it reveals him. It's so important that we understand Jesus and who he was because he was God in the flesh, that the entirety of the New Testament starts with what I'm calling our first signpost. It is the Fantastic Four. Okay. And yes, that is the Fantastic Four logo, but this is just to get a visual in your head. The Fantastic Four are the first four books of the New Testament. They are personal accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus. Think of them as four documentaries. Um, Anybody here love documentaries? There's documentary people. There's a few of you. I don't like go out of my way to watch documentaries, but when I do, I can't turn them off because they're so fascinating. Four documentaries the New Testament starts out with of Jesus. Their names of those books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're named after the authors. 
The themes of the Gospels is Jesus, who he was, what he did, what he taught. Every page is filled with insight into Jesus as God's solution to the sin problem of man. Matthew writes to the Jews. Mark writes to the Romans. Um, Luke writes to to the Greeks. Luke, actually, the interesting thing about him, he was not one of the disciples. The other three were disciples. Luke was actually a doctor that decided to put down and interview people and put down a a recording of all the events of Jesus um, so that everyone could understand. And then you have John, who wrote to everyone. Um, And I'll just tell you this, if you have never read the Bible and you don't know where to start, and you're going, oh, do I start at the beginning in Genesis? Do I start in the middle? Do I just do the drop and flop method? Just drop it, it flops open, I read. I don't know, where do I start? Um, I will just tell you this. I would encourage you to start in the book of John, the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read that documentary of Jesus' life and then just keep reading on into Acts, Romans, Corinthians, and on, uh, so on and so forth. And I'll tell you what's coming in all of those. Um, but the gospel shows us three things about Jesus that are the next three icons that we're going to have. Um, the person of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the preaching of Jesus. So let's start with the person of Jesus. It's your second icon, your, our second signpost. In the Gospel of John, we read that John the Baptist, who was sent to proclaim that Jesus was coming, said this about Jesus when he was on the earth in John 1, 29 through 34. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Speaking of the fact that Jesus has always been God's only son, God in the flesh. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, which is God, said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is, these are key words, this is the Son of God. What is the person of Jesus? Who is Jesus? The Son of God. This is where we begin to connect the entire Old Testament proclaiming that there would be the Son of God coming. This is where we start realizing in the Gospels, this is him. Jesus shows up. Jesus comes in and he proclaims to be the son of God. Numerous times he says, I am the son of God because Jesus, when he shows up, is the, is the fulfillment of God's foreshadowing. When we talked last week in Genesis 3, the story of mankind, Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they disobey God, they break their relationship with God. What does God do when he finds them in the garden and they're hiding from him? He doesn't smite them. He doesn't kill them. He doesn't punish them. He doesn't, he doesn't um, you know, just like, let's, let's just get rid of everything and start over. He actually kills an animal to cover them with its skin to cover their shame and their guilt. And you find the first sacrifice, innocent sacrifice to cover sin. Okay, in Genesis 3, they're already foreshadowing Jesus coming here and becoming um, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that would innocently be slaughtered to cover the sin, shame, and guilt of the world. It's already happening in in, in, uh, Genesis 3, first four books of the Gospels. You're recounting Jesus as the fulfillment of God. Now here, this is what Jesus did. These are your blanks. He drafted the dream team. 
He became a friend of sinners, and he rose above the haters, okay? That's what Jesus did. Um, he drafted the dream team, and what I love, and you start kind of seeing the heart of God in the Gospels um, through Jesus, um, he chose ordinary young men to be his leaders. He didn't go to the brightest, the smartest, the best looking, the most famous, the, most, uh, the people with the most resources or the richest. He actually drafted young fishermen who were carrying on their father's business to be his leaders that would start a new revolution. Um, he was a friend of sinners. He hung out with people that were the worst of the worst, and he rose above those who were the religious leaders who hated him because he taught a message of grace and forgiveness. They wanted to teach a message of law and condemnation. Jesus came in and just, it was grace and it was forgiveness and it was love. Now, one of the passages where you see this, which I love, is in Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It was like total disdain. The religious leaders of the day hated being around sinners and people that were impure, but Jesus, again, heart of God, loved people far from God. And the tax collectors and the sinners and the worst of the worst prostitutes loved being around him. Here's the question. Why did they love being around Jesus? Hmm? Perfect. He didn't judge them. Why did they all want to be around Jesus? Because they finally found someone that was a religious leader that didn't judge them, that didn't look down on them, that didn't condemn them. That's what Jesus was known for, loving other people, and people were drawn to him because of it. So here's the question, how well do you know Jesus? Have you personally read the Gospels and discovered who he truly is? Um, and I would just tell you, I think it would be amazing. I'm giving you a, a month and a day. It would be an amazing thing for you to just commit to yourself for the next month to read through the Gospel of John before Christmas. And I will tell you, if you will commit to doing that and you will read through the entire gospel of John before Christmas, Christmas will have a different meaning to you because you will know Jesus, the person of Jesus. You'll either get reacquainted with him because you haven't read it well, or you will take the little bite-sized nuggets that we talk about on Sunday mornings and you'll start feeding yourself an actual meal of truth and of, of uh, enlightenment and understanding who Jesus was, that Christmas will change for the better if you spend a month in this book reading through the gospel of John. So the gospel gives us an accurate picture of the heart of God where Jesus says this, and I'm going to, before we get on to the next, the next icon, Jesus said, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, get to know me. And so that's what we're told in scriptures. The gospel also revealed to us our next icon, the power of Jesus. It gives us the person of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and this is all about the miracles. The Bible have hundreds of miracles that Jesus did, and it clearly states that he healed everyone that came to him. Can you imagine going to a church service and every single person that came in with any type of ailment was healed? And even people that weren't there, but that were relatives of the people that were there were healed. Jesus grew back limbs that were deformed. He healed leprosy. He cast out demons. He brought dead people back to life on three different occasions. He fed 5,000 with bread and fish, with five loaves of bread and two fish. He fed 5,000 just men, which means it was 15 to 20,000 people. He fed on another time 4,000 people with Chick-fil-A um, before Chick-fil-A was even a thing. Um, like he gave them Jesus chicken. He knew what people were thinking. He answered their questions before they asked. He caused fish to swim into nets so much so that they broke. He calmed storms. He walked on water. He helped other people. Peter walked on water. He he healed a guy's ear that was severed from his body. He had supernatural powers that were beyond any human ability. Even secular writers at the time write about this man named Jesus who did the unthinkable, did the unexplainable. They said he was a sorcerer. 
Jesus actually said, no, it's the power of God that's in me because I'm the son of God that allows me to do these things. So what did the miracles do? The miracles actually showed us that he was God. If you had any question, is this guy any different than other religious leaders and religion founders? Is there anything that's, that's new about him? His miracles, the breath of his miracles, which the scriptures say, we can't even record them all because he did so many, shows us that he was God. They weren't just to wow people. They were actually to reveal that he was the son of God. And so here's the question, does God still do miracles? Does he still do miracles? And so let me just tell you this, if you need a miracle of God in your life, um, in two weeks, we are starting a series called I Need a Miracle. And it's all about how do you get the supernatural power of God to show up in your life? Is it possible for you to get the supernatural power of God? Is it possible to have God move miraculously on your behalf? Is that possible? Is that doable? Does that so happen today? Two weeks, we're starting this series, I Need a Miracle. Do not miss it. It'll be a life-changing series. The next icon that the Gospels reveal, and again, I'm running, people. I'm just going. Um, get your pens ready. Next is the preaching of Jesus. Um, he taught truths from God on how to live. Um, he used stories. Two-thirds of, the, of his teachings were stories. 70% um, of it is application-focused. If you want to know the best way to live, follow Jesus's teachings. And I'll give you an example of the way that Jesus taught for us to follow. Matthew 18, 21, Peter comes to Jesus, the lead disciple. Peter had had some annoying people in his life that were hurting him and that really bothered him. It was probably other disciples or some other people in his life. And Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Now, the law at the time said three times, and after three times, you can write them off, kick them out of your life. You don't ever have to talk to them again. That's what the religious law said. So Peter goes, okay, I'm going to take that three. I'm going to double it, add one. I'm going to be super spiritual here. Jesus, how many times should I forgive somebody? Seven. And he's thinking, wow, I'm way overdoing it. I'm so over the top. I am OP on this thing, okay, on forgiveness. I'm like way over the top here. And Jesus answers him, no, not seven times, Peter. He says, but... 70 times seven. And you know, Peter's sitting there going, gets out his little abacus and goes, it's 490. You know, it's like, it's so many times. How do you forgive somebody that many times? Well, here's the point. The point isn't to keep track. The point that Jesus is making is forgive, some, forgive people so many times that by the time you get to 50 to 75 to 100 times forgiving them, you're already living a life of forgiveness for them. So you're not even keeping track. It's application of God's word. Jesus teaches the way to a free life is through forgiveness. Religious taught there's a limit to it. Jesus says there's really no limit. Why? Because I'm going to forgive you every time you sin in your life. You need to turn around and forgive others. So this is how he taught information, demonstration, application. Information, demonstration, application. He would give them information. He would demonstrate it through a story. And then he would tell them, go apply it to your life. And I'm telling you, the life application is the big deal. It's a big deal to apply what Jesus taught. That's why all of us that teach up here, we're always working super hard. I spend hours a week making Sunday messages, something that are memorable and life applicable. And I love it. Last week, I saw somebody who, um, who accidentally left their notes right by the trash can. Um, by the way, don't throw your notes away. It's the word of God, okay? So, um, but they left them by that trash can completely by accident, I'm sure. But at the top of their notes, here's what was really cool. At the top of their notes, and if you were here last week, this will make sense to you. They wrote, Jesus is a hidden Mickey. That's what they wrote at the top of their notes. Now, if you're here last week, uh, if you weren't here last week in the Old Testament, I said, look, Jesus, if you look for him, is on every page of the New Testament. He's like a hidden Mickey at, at 
at, uh, at Disney World. Um, and so that's what they had written. But that's just a way to make Scripture memorable. But I'm just telling you, I want you to walk out of here every week. And this is, what, uh, this is one of the gifts God's given me. And this is what takes so much time during the week to prepare for Sunday mornings. I want you to walk out of here inspired, challenged, and encouraged to go apply God's Word to your life. And I will just tell you, I have nothing of significance to give to you. I have the best a human can come up with. But when I'm teaching God's word, and when you apply God's word, that's the stuff that I can give you that will change you for eternity, that will change and help every single situation in your life if you will apply God's word to your life. That's why Jesus taught information, demonstration, and spent 70% of his teaching on application. So the question is, when is the last time you applied something that Jesus taught you into your life? When's the last time you walked out of here and didn't go, man, that Kevin is so good looking. You know, when's the last time you, okay, no one's ever walked out of here saying that, um, obviously. Um, no, when's the last time you walked out of here and actually applied what was talked about here? And I mean, literally applied it to your life. When's the last time you read God's word on your own and something jumped out to you and you immediately applied it to your life? If you want your life to change, that's what you have to do. God's word only works is if you apply it. Okay, the Gospels give us the details to the most important story in the Bible, and that is the cross, our fifth icon, and I'm going to kind of fly through the next few. Um, all of history changes at the cross from the moment of man's fall and rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden. God had been moving all of history to that moment where Jesus comes to confront the darkness that really lurks underneath humanity's evil. Okay, that darkness is what, um, what, what makes us selfish. It's what leads us to violence and death. And how do you defeat it? Jesus showed us that he actually allowed our sin to kill him. He died to pay for that sin. And what he taught was, and the, this video said it great, nonviolence, forgiveness, and self-giving love are the most powerful things in the universe. Nonviolence, forgiveness, and self-giving love, the most powerful things in the universe. The last thing Jesus said on the cross was, it is finished. And he was referring to God's atonement, his solution to mankind's sin problem. The final payment for sin was made in that moment. And it was made by a perfect, innocent sacrifice of Jesus. And him allowing his blood to be spilt. And there were no more animal sacrifices that were required after that. And so what happened in that moment? Our sin debt was paid in full. Our sin debt was paid in full. We are completely and forgiven, uh, forever forgiven for all our sin by Jesus' final and complete payment on the cross. And let me just tell you what this tells you. And this is why it's so important to read the Bible, especially the New Testament. What does this reveal to you and to me? How much God loves you. You know, I've always heard it taught. It's always impacted me. You know, if you're the only one that needed it, Jesus would have gone to the cross for you because he loves you that much. You're that important to him. And I don't think we hear that enough in our life. I think most of the time we're getting beaten down and there's got to be a place where you can come to every time and realize and learn and be reminded that God loves you enough to send his son all the way to planet earth to die on a cross as an innocent person willingly giving up his life so that what? So that you might not have to pay for your sins. He paid for them. That's what the cross represents. He voluntarily took on our debt. And says, I love you through it. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you to the ends of the earth. I love you enough to God in the flesh, give up my life for the sake of you. And if you were the only one, Jesus would have done it. It's the beauty of this moment, this, this, uh, this stop in the New Testament. 
Now, Jesus was dead for three days, uh, but then just like he said he was, he rose again. Our next icon is the empty tomb. And this is what's interesting. Jesus predicted he would die and be dead for three days and then raise again. John 2.19, Jesus answered the, the religious leaders who were coming against him, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. He said that to them and they were actually at the temple in Jerusalem. And so they thought that Jesus was, was saying that, he was, that, that, that they should destroy that temple, which was holy and no one should ever even talk about it. They, they accused him of blasphemy. What they didn't realize is that we find out later in scripture that from Jesus's perspective, our bodies are the temple of God. And so what was Jesus saying in that moment? Destroy this temple, this body, and I will raise it from the dead in three days, predicting his death, speaking about his body. So the empty tomb reminds us, reveals to us that what Jesus provides is the ultimate victory over sin and death. Ultimate victory over sin and death. And I will just tell you this, without the empty tomb, there's no Christianity. If there's no empty tomb, we believe a lie. If there's no empty tomb, we might as well go home and enjoy our days because when we die, it's all over. That's what is. Death wins. We all die. We all go into the grave. Everything goes black. But because Jesus was raised from the dead, it separates Christianity from every other world religion because every other world religion's founder is in their grave. If anybody ever asks you, well, what sets Christianity? What's different about Christianity? It's that the founder of Christianity, Jesus Christ, there's no, there's no grave with a body in it. We actually have an empty grave. That's the empty tomb. There were over 500 people, over 500 people appeared, uh, saw Jesus appear after the crucifixion. They watched him die, over 500 eyewitnesses. And I will just tell you, in any court of law in the world, if you bring 500 witnesses to say they saw something, do you think you can get a verdict? Absolutely. We forget sometimes, hey, 500 people saw Jesus alive and that's documented. It was written during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. This is a big deal. Well, what does his re resurrection reveal? That we too will be resurrected. Paul explains it in the book of Romans. Romans 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? When you accept Jesus, you're baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of our Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. What we find through the empty tomb is that God has given us a, a way to live a brand new life. You no longer have to be um, living in the sin that has clouded your life, that has made your life difficult. You now have a new way to live because that old person is dead, buried with Jesus in the tomb, raised to new life. That's what the empty tomb symbolizes. Now, what is this new way to live? It's living with a new power as seen in our seventh icon, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up when Jesus is baptized. The first time uh, we see the Holy Spirit show up in the New Testament, Jesus is baptized. And uh, John says, I saw the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. That's the Holy Spirit. And what does that tell us? What does the Holy Spirit tell us? That God's Spirit is not with us anymore, but now lives in us. We are the temple of God. That's where the temple of God and God dwells in us now. This is new. Jesus tells us that I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and that spirit will live in you. This is a new thing. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power. Jesus is talking, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
He sends his Holy Spirit so that you and I might be filled with a supernatural power from inside. And the best way I can illustrate this, um, I was thinking, how do I make this come to life, um, is uh, I brought along a couple of things to use as illustrations. Now, how many of you guys have built something that you got from Ikea or a store that came in a box? Okay, yeah? Okay, now... If you have gotten some from Ikea, I'm sorry, you probably um, needed to ask for forgiveness after assembling it because of the words you used. Um, but Ikea is terrible. But I'm just telling you, when you are building those things, what would you rather build with? Would you rather build with this or with this? Just tell me, how many of you would rather build with this? Okay, yeah, none of you. How many would you rather build with this, right? How much time, yes, how much time does this take off of a project? Hours. Hours. This takes hours off. And here's the difference. I just put it to you. You can live life like this. You can live life like this, manually powering through everything. Every little, every little uh, facet of your life, you're just manually powering and twisting it and trying to make it work. Or you can actually use this to put your life together. Okay? Very different. You can go, wiki, 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 wiki. Or, right? What are you going to do? Wiki, 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 wiki. Oh, my shoulder. Here's the Holy Spirit. Here's the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is telling us, is you have access to a power that comes from within to do what is humanly impossible. All you have to do is ask, because it's already in you. You have a power source that's just different than doing it on yourself. So many of us, we go through life, and we want to do our relationships. We're just going to grab it and grip it, and we're going to twist it, and we're going to make it work. Our careers, we're just going to force them in, and we're going to try our hardest, and we're going to spend every waking minute stressing and worrying and full of anxiety, and i got to figure this out, and we just try and power through it. But what if you approach life differently? You said, God, God, help me with my career. God, help me with my parenting. God, help me love my wife because right now I'm just struggling. God, help my, life, my wife love me because right now she's struggling. But imagine if everything in your life, every problem in your life, you went inside and just said, God, I need your help. Give me the Holy Spirit. Help me raise my kids the right way. Give me direction because I don't know where to go in my life. My career feels like it's at a standstill. Help me know where to go. Lord, would you help me understand forgiveness? Would you help me give forgiveness? Lord, be with me every single day of my life. Do you think your life would be different if you just would use the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you that God's already offered to you if you believe in him? Yeah, guys and girls, God's power is so available and so readily accessible. And so many of you right this moment, what are you doing? Wiki, 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 wiki. Well, all you got to do is ask. And God from within will give you strength that's beyond human capability to live a life different than any other human is able to without his power. All right, sorry to get off on a tangent so much, but I'm a little passionate about that because it's like so many of the issues that we struggle with in our life, they're not solved, but we can navigate them differently using the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I'm going to jump into the next one. Um, after the Holy Spirit shows up in Acts, um, you have a new communities that start popping up all over the place called the church. The church kind of shows up, and with the good news of Jesus, this community of Christ followers shows up. Um, they love one another. They love their neighbors. They love God first and foremost. And uh, the church is God's plan A to reach the world. 
The church is God's plan A to reach the world, and there is no plan B. Um, God actually uses us to reach the world uh, for Christ. He says, you go be my messengers. You go tell people and bring them into this community called the church. And I'm telling you, when you have a community of people, which is what we're trying to build here that loves God and loves other people, it actually becomes a, a attractional place where generosity is, is upheld and people are not about themselves. They're actually about other people and they give to anyone in need and, tr- and people that need a relationship with other people and need a relationship with God are attracted to that. That's why we partner locally with places like Dillard Elementary Street, um, where we are we are helping kids for Christmas. Um, we're helping families in East Winter Garden and 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 uh, in, in, uh, Tildenville um, because we want to be generous. Um, that's why we want all of you to be in small groups. Um, we want you to serve because your community group kind of becomes your family. Your small group becomes a family within a family where you're known and you know other people and you experience a sense of community centered around Christ. Um, it's a different way of living. In fact, it was beautiful. Uh, just earlier uh, yesterday, Melissa and I went and visited Eric Swinarski in the hospital. He had an appendix um, issue earlier in the week. He had appendicitis and had to get it removed. I think he was trying to one-up Clint, who was out last week with appendicitis. Um, he did because he's still in the hospital. Eric is. Um, and I went and visited him last night. You know what they told me last night? Um, they said, yeah, our, uh, the runners with Hope Water came this morning and were uh, visited with us and helped us with the doctors because they have built community around Christ and they're experiencing what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a a community where we actually focus outward and help other people um, rather than focusing inward and being all about ourselves. In January, we're hoping to start three or four new small groups, community groups, life groups, where you do life with other people and study God's word. The ninth icon, you've got mail. Um, and yes, that is the AOL from way back in the day, if you remember that. Um, that's their icon. Uh, this part of the New Testament, um, it contains 21 letters written mostly by the Apostle Paul. Um, he started 14 churches that we know of um, from the Middle East to Rome. Um, Paul sends letters to the churches he started and ultimately to us. And here's what's amazing about these letters how relevant they are to our church today and to each one of us. If you read through the 21 letters written mostly by the Apostle Paul, 13 of them by Paul and, and the seven from our eight from other people, um, you will be shocked at how relevant it is to today. Most of them are encouraging and challenging books reminding us that we can leave our old person behind and live new lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, which gets us to our last icon. But before I tell you that one, um, we're going to receive our offering. So ushers, if you want to come on down. Um, For those of you that are visiting with us, let the basket go by. Um, We're not interested in your resources. For those of you that call Kensington home, this is where we give back to God from what he's blessed us with. And and, uh, we're very grateful for those of you that give both here on Sunday mornings, but also those of you that give online. Thank you for that. Um, So while we are receiving our offering... um, Let me get us to our 10th icon, and our 10th icon is heaven. It's heaven. The book of Revelation, at the very end, and now it's not Revelations. Someone says, hey, you read Revelations yet? You're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Revelation teaches about a new heaven and a new earth. We did a series in September about it when God started, what God started in Eden will be consummated in the new heaven and new earth. It won't be like Eden, but actually be better than Eden, where Jesus, the slain lamb, is the king of the world. And so here's your fill in the blanks. The man who rose from the dead said there's a lot more ahead. The man who rose from the dead said there's a lot, a lot more ahead. I would love for you to go read that passage of Scripture. I don't have time to right now, but that's listed underneath that note. Read that passage of Scripture, and you'll realize that the hope of heaven is real. The hope of heaven is real.
And so here's what I want to do to kind of end the message part of our day. Um, As I want to say this, the New Testament is where we find the answer to our sin problem. Um, It's where we find out how much God loves us. It's where we find out the means of salvation, the strength on this earth to live out significant lives for God. It's where we find forgiveness for our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins. We find the grace for that. It's where we find out that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the payment of that sin is death. Um, But thanks to God that he sent his son to die in our place so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Through the New Testament, we find the way to have a new life saved from an eternity apart from God to an eternity with God. And it all starts with a relationship with Jesus. That's how you access the Holy Spirit is through a relationship with Jesus. And that is why some of you here today, today is your day. And you might not have known it when you walked in here, but today is your day to accept Jesus Christ into your life. God's been nudging you, pulling you, pressing on you. Today's your day to finally step across the line of faith. So I want to ask everybody in the room, please bow your head and close your eyes. And I want to give you an opportunity, if that's you, I want to give you an opportunity to accept Jesus today and surrender your life to him. And I'll just put it this way. If you want to be transformed today by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, all you have to do is pray this prayer with me. You can use my words, make them your own from your heart to God. You don't have to say them out loud. But you can say something like this, God, thank me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus into the world. I believe he died on the cross to pay for my sins and that he rose again and I place my faith in him. I pray that you will forgive me for my sins and give me the gift of eternal life. Help me face the challenges I'm up against. Help me see the way out that you provide for me when I'm tempted. And give me the power of your Holy Spirit to take that way out. God, today I surrender my life to you. Amen.